There is nothing like hearing God's people sing. Be thou my vision. What a wonderful hymn. And to sit up front and hear that come from you all this morning was a real blessing to me. Thank you for singing and participating in that. Thank you, team, for leading that. Beautiful piano, beautiful violin, everything. Just incredible. My name's Pete Hughes, and along with uh, Jeremy Procaccini, who will follow me, and you've already met Carl Camp, our elder board chairman, we're charged with teaching uh, on Ecclesiastes chapter 4 this morning. The last three weeks, Darren has been examining Ecclesiastes, start through chapter 3, and a very brief summary of those first three chapters that I wrote down while I was listening over the last three weeks was this. The author of Ecclesiastes, speaking as the preacher or Koholet, does not deny the existence of God and even acknowledges his sovereignty in dealing with his creation. But he struggles to understand why God has ordered things the way that he has. He's frustrated and he doesn't like it. The book chronicles his attempt to understand both through observation and through experience what the world and our living in it is all about. And all he can come up with is that living in this world is vanity or striving after wind. The word in the original text is hevel. You've heard that the last three weeks, which means vapor or breath and conveys a sense of meaninglessness. And from that perspective, life and the world is an endless cycle of death. We're born, and we grow up, and we work, and we build, and then we die. And in the end, nothing is remembered, and the cycle starts over and over again. In chapter 2, it was about the pursuit of pleasure in all of its forms. And Darren shared that Colette denied nothing to himself, but he found no answers in these things either. These also were Hevel. And last week in chapter 3, Colette saw that there was indeed a time and a season for everything, and even wrote that God made everything beautiful in its time. But there was a frustration even with that, because the timing doesn't make sense to us. In chapter 4, we find a shift from looking at himself and more looking at other folks. Having experienced uh, the inability to find lasting happiness in work or the pursuit of pleasure, he considers the actual misery that men and women experience, of which the world is full. Amen? And in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4, he finds that much of this misery is a function of how men and women deal with each other. In chapter, uh, excuse me, in verses 1 through 3, it's the oppression of the weak by the strong and powerful. In verses 4 through 6, it's competition with one another. And in verses 7 and 8, there's an aspect of loneliness when there's no one else to share the fruit of our labor with us. So in the short time that I have, wow, short time is right, um, uh, I'm going to just look at the first three verses. 
these verses express the sorrow and frustration caused by the injustice of a sinful world. And you might remember from last week in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Colette uh, complains about the wickedness and the, uh, that has displaced justice and righteousness. He knows God is going to judge, but the frustration comes from the waiting for that judgment to take place. The first three verses of chapter 4, he considers the wickedness and the oppression of powerful men and the powerless and weak ones who suffer as a result. We see in verse 1, he saw the oppressions that were done under the sun, and on the side of those oppressors there was power. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. He mentions they had no one to comfort them twice, emphasizing their hopelessness. Here we have the powerful dominating the weak and the powerless. One commentator noted that while our translation uses the plural tears, the Hebrew uses the singular, a single tear. Now this could reflect just one long tear, one torrent of tears, never ending. That's how deep their misery was. It could also mean that their life was so difficult that they had cried out all of their tears. Their tears were exhausted, and they could scarcely cry one more. And he sees there is no one to comfort them, no one to console them. Can you imagine living like that? No one to console one, nobody to visit them in sympathy for their sorrow, no one to wipe away their tears, no one to help them resist the wickedness and the injustice. You can feel the depth of that sorrow and helplessness. And there are probably people in this room, perhaps right now, who are feeling that same sorrow and helplessness. In response to this, reflecting his frustration on the state of affairs and the meaninglessness with which all this seems to be happening, Colette writes that the dead are better off because at least their suffering is over. And even better than that, those that had never been born. So they never have to endure the suffering, and they never have to witness the suffering of others. So he's painted a pretty bleak picture of life under the sun. Life is so fraught with wickedness and injustice and and misery that death is a better solution or never being born. When I was studying this, um, I recalled another passage of Scripture that reflected similar sentiments. You know, Ecclesiastes is not the only place where the Bible expresses frustrations like this, about injustice that seems to escape accountability, where questions get asked about the difficult circumstances that people are enduring without any relief. Listen to what David says in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O God, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. In this psalm of David, now remember, David is a man after God's own heart. And he gives voice to the same questions that Ecclesiastes is asking. What is the point of the suffering of the weak at the hand of the strong and the powerful? And how long... Must we endure this? And Darren has mentioned each week that some of the answers, um, 
to these questions we have today that the writer of Ecclesiastes did not have. And we have those answers because Jesus provided them during his ministry and afterward through the Holy Spirit. These answers are found in Jesus. We don't know God's timing of the judgments of those who are abusing and crushing the weak, but Jesus did make a promise at Pentecost that he kept. We read in John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And yet a little while the world will see you no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. We are not alone. And these verses show that Jesus promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he came. And we read that in Acts 2 at Pentecost. The same Spirit of God comforts us in our affliction. From 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. David himself, even the face of trials and attacks, asking the difficult questions, O Lord, how long? He believed and he trusted God. And we read that at the end of Psalm 13. But I have trusted you in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. We have a comforter. We have somebody that will be with us. That is the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before I move on, I wanted to address what Koholet said about the dead being better off. I wouldn't be surprised if there's someone here in the room with us today that had similar feelings and thought ending their life might be the answer. There may be someone in the room with those thoughts today. But later in Ecclesiastes, Colette expressed a different opinion. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 4, But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Where there is life, there's hope. And unlike the oppressed that we see in verse 1, there are people here today to offer comfort and to come alongside you. You do not need to feel alone. You do not need to feel like you're isolated. These are folks who have been comforted in their affliction that they might comfort others. We have the prayer room. There will be people up front here at the end. If you need that, please come up and avail yourself of that. And real quickly, because my time is just about up. If actually, it is up, but I'm going to go over a little bit more. Um, in verses 4 through 6 of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we see another aspect of man's dealing with one another, and that's the competition that men have with one another that's driven by the envy of, a, of the success that they have for someone else. It's a picture of people working against each other rather than with each other, supporting each other. And while we see the difficulties that men create for one another, 
Isolating yourself is not going to be the answer either. We see in verses uh, 7 and 8, a man can amass great wealth, but there's no satisfaction because there's no one to share it with, to enjoy it with. But this isolation results from their wrapping their arms around their possessions instead of wrapping their arms around other people. Failing to value relationship, we find ourselves alone. Now, Jeremy's going to come up and speak to us about that need for relationship and that life alone or in contention with one another is not the answer. Jeremy. My name's Jeremy Procaccini, as Pete shared, and I'm honored to serve on your elder board. As we get started here, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to help me finish a few famous lines. That means that I'm going to say them and then you could speak the last word back to me. Let's give it a try. If you want to do something right, do it yourself. How about from this famous Sinatra song? I faced it all and I stood tall and I did it my, my way. Wow. Here's one from Walt Disney. May not be as popular. If you can dream it, you can do it. All right. With Disneyland so close, I should have known some people would get it. Good. Isn't it interesting how sayings like these are sewn into the fabric of our culture? Growing up here, we're taught to pursue our destiny. Go to school, study hard, get a degree, find a job, chase our dreams, make money. We learn what it means to be successful in this culture. And it's easy to forget other people along the way. We get lost in our ambition. So Kohelet's thoughts in verses 7 and 8 make sense to us. If there's nobody to share the fruits of our labor with, what's the point? He describes this as hevel as Pete mentioned, meaningless. Some translations even say depressing. And he uses the next few verses to offer a better way. In the same way Darren said it last week, this isn't being sold as the ultimate way or the best way. It's simply better. Starting in verse 9, it says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I love how practical Kohelet's thoughts are here. He gives four simple examples why doing things together is better than doing them alone. Back in Bible college, I learned to put sections of scripture into my own words. It helps me to digest them better, you know, get them right down in there. So I took my best shot at these verses, and here's what I came up with. I hope this is helpful for all of you, too. For verse 9, housework gets done faster when we do it as a family. For verse 10, if I get hurt while running with a friend, he can help me get to safety. Verse 11, sharing blankets with my wife on a cold night keeps me warm. And verse 12, if a stranger attacks me in downtown Fullerton, a friend could help me restrain them until the police arrive. As we said before, Kohelet is saying there are benefits to including others rather than doing things alone. And there's good reasons not to do things alone. We get more done. Help is available. There's added protection. The threefold cord he mentions seems to say that involving people brings greater strength. Like the rest of this book, there are different interpretations to today's text. 
Sometimes it's used for a sermon on marriage. In this case, it can be taught that there are three people in marriage. You, your husband or wife, and God. The threefold cord provides a picture of this. Some of you might think this is the right way to handle this passage, and that's okay with me. But I I do think that the truth that's shared in the passage can be applied to marriage. But I don't think it was the intent of the writer. Family relationships may be what stimulated his thoughts based on what's shared in verses 7 and 8. However, for anyone listening today, whether you're single or married without children, these verses apply equally to you too. Some of you may be thinking, Jeremy, the relationships around me are a mess right now. I don't see how they can be a benefit to me. I could say the same about a few in my own life, if we're being honest. But hang in there with me, all right? I hope you'll find some encouragement. What Kohelet shares here is for everyone. All things considered, I think he's presenting the idea that relationships are important. And they're valuable. It doesn't matter whether they exist in a family, a marriage, or in a friendship. In my opinion, the best place for this to happen is in a community of believers like this. When I started thinking about the why surrounding this message, I had a hard time landing on a good illustration. And then my family and I ended up watching Castaway. Chuck Nolan, played by Tom Hanks. Are there any Tom Hanks fans here? All right, good. We're tracking. Ends up on an island with nothing but the clothes on his back and a watch with his fiance's picture on it. It was right under the cover. Some packages end up washing up on the shore of a beach, and there's a volleyball in one of them. One day, he's trying to start a fire, you know, doing this whole friction thing. He's rubbing two sticks together, and he slips, and his hand gets cut. So he grabs the volleyball in anger, and he throws it. Then he goes over to her later on and picks it up, and the handprint actually looks like a face. So he draws eyes and a nose and a mouth on it, and it becomes Wilson. And it ends up being his best friend. You could tell that talking to Wilson and the pocket watch helped him survive while he's on the island. The connection strengthened his resolve. He wouldn't have made it without them. That was the conclusion I came to when watching the movie. I was like, wow, what an interesting example of community. It's also an example of a threefold cord in a different way. Tom Hanks' character was sustained by those relationships, as weird as it sounds. I think in many ways, we are sustained by our relationships. Because God created us to live in community. Doing life with others in a faith community is far better than going it alone. The New Testament supports this idea as well. Here are a couple examples. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6.2, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here Paul is urging the church to be agents of restoration. If someone is lost in sin, he tells the community to come around them and help them carry the load. Rather than leaving the person to struggle alone, he expects the church to move in and help. For us today, this is an example of healthy, restorative community. We want Fullerton Free to be a place where nobody has to struggle alone. 
That's why we have elders and staff up here at the end of the service. And that's why we have this prayer room over here. Because we want everyone in relationship with brothers and sisters who can support them. In a similar vein, the author says it like this in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I have a good friend and teammate who says, we just need to spur one another on when things get tough. I think that captures what the author is saying here. He tells them to motivate each other toward good things. Don't follow those who are leaving. Stay in there. Keep praying. Keep serving. Keep encouraging each other. But do it together. Like Kohelet, he's saying it's better to do things together than to go it alone. And the same is true for us today. I think it's harder following Jesus in isolation. Would you agree with me? We need each other. If you know someone is struggling with their faith, and unfortunately, it's happening a lot these days, move towards them, stay with them, and encourage them to stay plugged into their community and continue pursuing the things of God. We don't want to be content to go it alone. Relationships matter to God. After all, God wants to be in relationship with us. Last Sunday, Darren shared a simple truth that stuck with me throughout the week. He said, Jesus is the clearest articulation of God. The clearest articulation of God. With that in mind, I want to finish by focusing on God's desire to be in relationship with us. Let's take another look at what it says in John 14, 15 to 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So followers of Jesus are connected to God. We are in relationship with him. In this passage, Jesus asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit, who now lives in all those who believe. He also dwells amongst us, working in our midst. The Holy Spirit is both in those who follow Jesus and works among the gathered church so we can experience the fullness of God together. Here and everywhere else the people of God are worshiping right now. So this assembled body of believers has a plus one today. And every other time we're gathered together and it's the God of the universe. Two are better than one. If we add a third, we're even stronger. So let's keep pressing into the relationships around us. Now Carl's going to come up and share a little bit more about isolation. Good morning again. My, my passage is the last four verses. These guys had about eight verses each. I only have four, so it shouldn't take too long. And... Um, Since it's been a while since we have uh, looked or heard the passage, I'm going to read Ecclesiastes 4, 13 to 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth 
who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Now there's some things in there that are not clear that I'm going to skip over because they're not part of the, uh, the main points of this passage. So we'll jump right into to verse 13 where we see an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to listen to others and take advice. Uh, this ties this portion right back to what Jeremy just told us about in terms of the need to be in relationship with others. This is an example of someone who, as they got older, uh, did not listen to others and did not take advice uh, from others. Let's recognize that it's not just about a king. This applies to all of us, um, whether we're in leadership or not. We cannot stop taking advice. We cannot stop growing. Uh, otherwise, we become this uh, old and foolish person. The verse speaks of someone who no longer takes advice. Not wanting to hear from others can easily lead to isolation, as Pete talked about some on isolation. As we get older, there is a tendency to become more isolated. Some of this is caused by health issues and because of life circumstances. But other times, it's intentional, especially for us introverts, that it's easy to move that direction. I saw that in my own dad uh, as he became more and more isolated as he got older, uh, such that he really pulled back from contact with, with many people. I feel that tendency within myself, especially since I retired, that it's easy to want to kind of be on my own and uh, it's harder for me to want to be around, listen to, and deal with other people. Uh, It's more peaceful, if you will. But that's not what the passage is telling us. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, This passage is a reminder for all of us to stay in relationship with others. And it's a warning against isolation and not listening to the advice of others. I urge you to be intentional about developing and maintaining relationships. Verse 13 and 14 now shift to this poor and wise youth who came from prison to the throne. He became king. In today's society, um, we love to hear stories of people who go from rags to riches. We look favorably on most of those who do that and who have pulled themselves up from hard beginnings. But what's Ecclesiastes saying about this? Look at verse 16. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This youth became king. He led all the people. But after a while, after he was gone, is my assumption, people no longer rejoiced in him. They either had changed their opinion of him or time had gone by. Generations had gone by and they did not remember him. Ecclesiastes uh, tells us that since people no longer and rejoice and remember him, in spite of him growing up to be king, all of his pursuits were like vanity and striving after wind. They were meaningless. 
It's easy to see how this applies today. You know, what are the end results of all of our striving, all of our activities? What will happen after a few generations? Will people rejoice over us as they remember us? Or will it all be vanity and meaninglessness? Ecclesiastes was written long before Jesus was born. Uh, and the writer didn't have Jesus' life and teaching to help him understand you know, what th- uh, the answers to the questions that he's really raising in this book. We do. We have a better understanding because of what Jesus lived and taught while he was with us. And we can know or have a better understanding of what is and is not vanity or meaninglessness. The question becomes, what can we give our lives to that is not meaningless? What will last? What is eternal? We know from the Bible that, that God is eternal. We also know that people are eternal. All of us will spend eternity somewhere. Jesus, in John 17, 3, tells us that eternal life is knowing God. The verse says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Those who truly know Jesus as their Lord and Savior will experience eternity in the presence of God. Those who do not know Jesus will not be with God in eternity. So what can I give my life to that will not be meaningless? As Ecclesiastes has shown us, it's not success or money or pleasure or power. Ultimately, those things are meaningless. What is not meaningless is participating with God and others to accomplish God's purposes. A phrase that motivates me toward that, that I've heard for quite a long time, is the phrase, to know Christ and to make him known and to help others do the same. That's what I want to give my life to. Yeah, and that's, that's what's meaningful. Participating with God and making Jesus known is what is meaningful. This morning, if you do not know Jesus personally, come up and talk to us uh, during the response time or after the service. We'd love to have a discussion with you. If you do know Jesus, think about the legacy you can have in eternity by helping others know and grow in their relationship with Jesus. Meaning is found that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to fulfill your purposes and to live a life that is meaningful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.